If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Lexicon Valley is brought to you by audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Mike Volo. Today, episode number six, a meditation on Scrabble, wherein we discuss a division among players over words and ask whether the game in fact celebrates language. Bob Garfield is away this week, so it's just me. And I thought since our first handful of episodes were all relatively academic, you know, touching on grammar and etymology and linguistics and lexicography, I thought that we would in this episode lighten it up a bit and talk about language and gaming. I've always been a really big fan of word puzzling. I had a subscription to Games Magazine when I was a kid. I'm a longtime crossword and cryptic crossword and diagramless crossword and acrostic solver. I moonlight as a sort of proofer or test solver for a puzzle magazine company. I love all of that stuff. That said, I've never really been much of a Scrabble fan because, well, I have a very specific critique of the game that I think is not uncommon, and we'll get to that in a bit. But it so happens that one of the guys I work with on one of Slate's other podcasts, Hang Up and Listen, which is the antidote to the kind of grousing sports talk shout fests that I grew up on in the New York area as a Yankees fan, Hang Up and Listen is thoughtful and probing and smart, and one of the regular panelists on the show is Stefan Fatsis. He's a former sports reporter for the Wall Street Journal and the author of a couple of excellent sports books. He also happens to be a competitive Scrabble player, and he wrote a book about his own deep dive into the game, a book called Word Freak, with the subtitle Heartbreak, Triumph, Genius, and Obsession in the World of Competitive Scrabble Players. He just published an updated 10th anniversary edition in this past year. I thought that if I wanted to gain more of an appreciation for this game, and I honestly do, then he's the guy to talk to. So thanks for being on the show, Stefan. Hey, Mike. I think we should establish first that competitive Scrabble and the sort of living room variety of Scrabble that many of us play with our friends and family 
although essentially the same game, they're really very different. It's sort of like you know Major League Baseball versus T-ball or something like that. So explain for me what the difference is. The difference is how you approach the game. I think in the living room, for people, it's, it's a word game. It's who can make the cutest word, the cleverest word, or the highest scoring word. In competitive Scrabble, it's much more a strategic game. It's a mathematical game. It's about probabilities. It's about knowing what letters are left to be played that are still in the bag versus what's been played on the board. It's about trying to build a rack toward making a seven or an eight letter word or a longer word using all of your letters at once making a bingo it's about understanding board geometry and strategy trying to outthink your opponent and balance the risk of opening something up versus the potential reward for you being able to capitalize on that with the same frequency in most cases as your opponent it becomes a kind of chess game and just like in chess where you sort of practice gambits in Scrabble, there's a kind of training regimen as well. Yeah, I, I, in, the, in Word Freak, I compare it to memorizing thousands or hundreds of openings in chess. In Scrabble, you memorize thousands and thousands of words. What you're doing is essentially arming yourself with an arsenal of language. The only way to play this game to its fullest potential is to understand the rules of the game. And the rules are the words. I mean, the words are strings of letters that you have at your disposal because using them at the appropriate time will maximize your chances of winning the game. It's very limited use of language. In order to maximize those chances, you have to know as many of those words as possible. That's step one. And there are many players that have memorized every playable word in Scrabble in North America and some who have memorized every playable word in international Scrabble. And those are two different things that I think we'll talk about later. Part two, then, is being able to retrieve the words from your brain at the appropriate time. It's performing under pressure. But it's not just words, because you also have to memorize what are called stems, like six letters that don't necessarily form a word, but when you add a seventh letter to them, they do form a word, and there are many different seventh letters that you can add to them to form any number of words. And so you have to memorize what these multiple common six-letter combinations are, or seven-letter combinations to which you can add an eighth letter in hopes that you get rid of all your tiles, and you get a sort of 50-point bonus for that. It's called the bingo, as you mentioned. Right. So when Scrabble became popular in the early 1950s, very, very quickly, players figured out that you're going to maximize your chances of winning if you play play the words that appear most frequently in the game or the letters that emerge most frequently from a bag of 100 tiles. There are 12 E's for a reason. There are four S's for a reason. The guy that invented the game, Alfred Butts, was very deliberate in his creation of Scrabble. He wrote down thousands of words and calculated the letter frequencies that appear in the English language basically by writing down words and letters that appeared in pages of newspapers and magazines in New York where he lived. So the earliest players discovered that, yeah, if I realize that I'm going to pull out a lot of E's and R's and N's and T's, and those are the most commonly occurring letters in the English language, and they're also the most commonly occurring letters in Scrabble, they will be the ones that I can play the most. So players very quickly realize that I got to go through the dictionary, write down the stuff I need to use a lot, the two-letter words, the three-letter words, and then these very common seven-letter words, and learn them. So yes, one way of studying is to take these stems, satire, tisane, retina, those are the three most common stems, and learn all of the words that when you add a seventh letter combine to make words. And just those three stems combine to make around 200 words. So Scrabble players then 
figured out that if I create more stems and create more methods of memorizing those stems and the words that are contained in them, you'll have more words in your brain. And those are the words that will appear more frequently in the game. So for example, if I were to say satire, a six letter stem and say F, they'll be able to tell me all the bingos. There you go. (laughs) If I were to say Tizane and T. Satinette in state. Okay. So apparently you've done this. Now, at its core, Scrabble is a game of anagrams then. And that's a big part of the practice regimen. It's not just memorizing these stems and these words. You also have to train yourself to see words in an otherwise random sequence of letters. Right. And one technique that Scrabble players use is laying out their tiles in alphabetical order. That's called an alphagram in Scrabble. And just the trigger of seeing a pattern that you've seen before trigger something in your brain to say, oh, I know the words that are contained in that group of letters, or I know that there are no words contained in that group of letters. Hmm. I have found that some players like to learn definitions, parts of speech. Learning a definition helps them to tether the word in their mind and not forget it. And transfer it from short-term to long-term memory in your brain really is what's happening. I found that definitions were too much. Definitions are fascinating. I love looking up words whenever I come across a Scrabble word that I've never seen before. I look it up when I teach kids how to play Scrabble, which I do a lot of. We open the dictionary constantly when they find something that's unusual or I suggest a word that's uncommon. But ultimately, the goal is the same. How many of these words can I cram in there and extract at the proper time? And how many strings of letters can I then sort of decode into an actual playable word? And these are sort of games that Scrabble players play with each other. They will call out a string of letters as an alphagram in alphabetical order, and the other person will have to try to form a word from it. And we're not talking like a string of three or four or five letters. We're talking eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 letters. 13, 14, 15 Yeah. Um, It's a fascinating thing to watch. It was my indoctrination into Scrabble in some ways. At the very beginning of Word Freak, at one of the first tournaments I played, and a couple of the guys that ended up becoming main characters in the book would play this game and sort of drag me into it to sort of test my linguistic manhood. And it felt like an initiation right for me when I realized, like, oh, I can do this. Not like they do. It's sort of both on the front end thinking of a word and then mentally rearranging the letters in alphabetical order and spitting them out instantly. And then on the back end, solving the riddle instantaneously. But I had some facility for doing that. I mean, I had a math brain, but not a math brain like the super experts. Now, the problem I think some people have with Scrabble is its reliance on these thousands and thousands of very obscure words that have really no place at all in the everyday vocabulary of most people, of any people, really. These words sort of sit somewhere outside of the practical lexicon. And I'm sympathetic to this complaint, though I guess I would describe it a bit differently. I mentioned earlier that I moonlight for a puzzle company, and a type of puzzle that I test solve is called a logic problem. I usually describe, for people who don't know, for people who ask, which is pretty rare, I usually describe a logic problem as a math problem disguised as a word problem. And that's sort of how I think of Scrabble. It reduces the language to a series of mathematical symbols that fit together in select patterns. Am I wrong to think of it that way? No, not at all. I mean, I think that's what it is at the highest levels. Ultimately, this is about a board 
that is 15 squares by 15 squares. There are numerical values assigned to both the letters, and there are mathematical values assigned to the playing squares, some of them. The goal of the game is to find the right solution mathematically, the optimal solution that will allow you to win. I'm keeping track of how many vowels are left. I'm keeping track of how many consonants are left. I'm aware of which consonants and which vowels are unseen to me. So I'm performing a sort of mathematical balance. If I look at my rack and I decide, oh, I need to get rid of these seven consonants in order to maximize my chances of winning, I can then look and say, oh, there are 16 vowels left and there are only eight consonants left. I should probably keep two or three of my consonants, the ones that are most likely to yield a bingo to allow me to use all seven of my tiles at once, rather than getting rid of all of the consonants because I know that I'm likely to draw a preponderance of vowels the next time. And yet, despite all of this math that you're describing that you need to do to be a competitive Scrabble player, it somehow releases the beauty of the language for you. Make me understand that. From a purely language orientation, what Scrabble does to my mind is for players who have devoted the time to learn as many of the acceptable words as possible, it has given these words a second life. You have to accept in Scrabble that it is not a game of who knows more words in a daily sense, who's got a broader vocabulary. That's not what it's about. Completely irrelevant. Irrelevant. It's about who knows more words in a purely pile-driving sense. If you view the words as tools which I do, then you are inherently accepting their legitimacy as part of the language. I think you just have to accept that the language is broader and it is deeper, it is more diverse, and it is more challenging than you or I are accustomed to thinking of it. It's a way of considering language that is beyond communication, beyond writing, beyond speaking, beyond daily usage. So for Scrabble players, you may think of it as this sort of brute force assault on the language. How many of these words can I ingest indiscriminately? Or you can look at it as, wow, it is really cool that there are so many words in English that don't get used every day, and I have an opportunity to do that by playing this game. I think of it as liberating words mm -hmm. from the prison of dictionaries. There's another kind of cognitive dissonance then that I find really interesting in Scrabble. It's this realization that although there is a precise probabilistic best play presumably, for any given turn. There is. Yet, there's this sense among even competitive Scrabble players who know that, that there's something to do with those seven tiles that's in some way transcendent, possibly, with any given turn. When I play Scrabble, I am forever hoping that something transcendent will occur. And it is that possibility that keeps you playing game after game after game, after game, for years and years and years, because you know that something magical could happen. And that magic can be in a Scrabble sense. You know, I can lay something very pedestrian down where seven letters go on top of seven more letters. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. But it might also be something magical that happens linguistically, a beautiful word, a beautiful string of letters that look unusual set one against another, or 
a play that requires the sort of mental dexterity that elicits something unusual on the board, finding a word through three disconnected letters, extending one word into something longer that has a completely different meaning. Meaning is intrinsic to native speakers when you're playing Scrabble because you can appreciate the second sense of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. From a purely Scrabble perspective, though, it's all about utility. The beauty is secondary. We're going to talk in a few minutes about the controversy that I alluded to earlier, the controversy in the Scrabble world over which dictionary to use, essentially. But first, we're just going to take a short break and mention our sponsor. Lexicon Valley is sponsored this week by Audible.com. I'm sure if you're a podcast listener, you have at least heard of Audible.com, which is a great service that provides audiobooks and audio entertainment and audio information on the internet. There are literally 100,000 audiobooks that they provide, and you can listen to them on just about any device that you choose, including, I'm sure, whatever device you're listening to us right now on. Audible has a special offer for Lexicon Valley listeners. If you sign up for a free 30-day trial membership, you'll get one audiobook of your choice completely free. They've set up a special URL to do this. It's audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. And as I mentioned, there are thousands of books that you can choose from, everything from classics to New York Times bestsellers to everything in between. You know, I've been thinking about a book that Lexicon Valley listeners might especially enjoy. I imagine that there are many Shakespeare fans out there among our listenership. I myself am a huge Shakespeare fan. I have as a kind of unofficial goal to sort of always be reading or rereading one of his plays. And there's a fantastic book by James Shapiro. He's a professor of English at Columbia University. He wrote a book called Contested Will, in which he goes through the sort of history of conspiracy theories and authorship controversies and charlatans who've played a part in this over the years. It's really a fascinating read, and it gets a starred review from Publishers Weekly. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's called Contested Will. I would recommend that as your free audiobook, but of course, it's of your choice. The membership, if you sign up, includes a free subscription to either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So, Give it a try. Use the URL that they set up for us so that they know you're a Lexicon Valley listener. It's audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. Okay, back with Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of Word Freak. And before we talk about this current controversy over which word list to use, essentially, which dictionary, I want to talk a little bit about the words themselves. There's a guy you've written about who's attraction to the words of Scrabble is sort of all-consuming, or was. He has since died. Yet it's also detached, as you've said. Tell me about Joe Leonard. Uh, Joe was not a Scrabble player, but he was a list maker. He was a guy that lived reclusively in a small apartment in Philadelphia. 
at the dawn of the creation of the Scrabble Dictionary in the late 1970s and the early 1980s, Joe fact-checked the book. No one asked him to do it, but he started compiling lists of errata from the official dictionary and sending them in to the National Scrabble Association and to Merriam-Webster's, which was the book's publisher and still is the book's publisher. Joe never asked for compensation. He had some form of, I don't know, autism or Asperger's. He had thousands and thousands of papers that comprised his life's work, essentially. And he had an impact on the sort of lexicon of the Scrabble world, right? He did. He fixed it in some ways. I mean, what was ironic about Joe's involvement was that this was a guy that was sending in these single-spaced typed pages of corrections, and they were accepted by the Scrabble Association and by Merriam-Webster without so much as double-checking some of his work. He, he actually, <laughs> at one point, sent in some corrections. They were added, but nobody followed up with him. And then only later did he say, oh, I just sent those in because that was the beginning of my work. I wanted to see if you wanted the rest of it. So I only got up to the letter K. Um, and yet nobody <laughs> followed up with him. Joe's approach to language was something more holistic in many ways. He really cared about etymology. He really cared about the history and the origin and the beauty of these words. But he also, because of his nature, was concerned that the Scrabble Dictionary be correct, whether Mm -hmm. anyone asked him to or not. And so let's talk about this lexicon that Scrabble players use. This is sort of the source of the current controversy among North American Scrabble players. There is this dictionary that contains all the acceptable Scrabble words, and then there is this other sort of dictionary that international players use that has a whole host of additional words. Right. So there are two books, and the the history goes like this. In 1978, there was the publication of the official Scrabble Players Dictionary, the first edition. At the same time, Scrabble was being played overseas using a British word source. And the reason for that initial schism is that Scrabble is owned by two different companies. Hasbro owns the game in North America. Mattel owns the game, the rights to the game in the rest of the world. For international play and the world championships were first held in 1991, they merged the two books into something called SAUPODS, which was a combination of two acronyms of the OSPD, the Official Scrabble Players Dictionary, and Official Scrabble Words, which was the international word book. The rest of the world gradually in the last two decades has adopted the international lexicon, this broader book. There's about 270,000 words playable in international Scrabble of two to 15 letters long. In North America, the official word list, which is two to 15 letters long also, is about 178,000 words. So it's a big difference. Mm -hmm. International play has grown in popularity. Southeast Asia has become a hotbed of international Scrabble, big prize money, government-sponsored tournaments. Uh, It's fascinating to see how this has evolved. Why Southeast Asia? I don't know exactly. Thailand is one of the most unusual places. This was not an English-speaking country. Scrabble was brought as a game that was used in schools to help teach kids English. And over the years, it evolved into something that became very central to teaching kids. So there are tournaments in Thailand where thousands of school children play Scrabble. It's fascinating. But in other English-speaking countries in Southeast Asia and Australia and other parts of the world, it's viewed as something culturally accepted, something that governments have been willing to kick in money for. There have been giant tournaments with $50,000 in first prize money. The consequence of this is that the North American-only players 
who used to dominate international Scrabble have fallen behind. Because they don't know all of these extra words that are in this combined international dictionary. Or if you learn a lot of these extra words in the combined international dictionary, you then have to segregate them in order to play Scrabble in North America. You have to effectively forget all of these other thousands of words that you have learned in order to play domestically. Not only do you have to know which words are now eligible for play in international play, but then when you play here at home, you have to know which words not to play, which words, if challenged, will be thrown out. Correct. The very best players in the world can do that. The top player in the world now and possibly ever is a guy named Nigel Richards, who's a New Zealander who lives in Malaysia now. He has the ability to segregate the words. He has won the, the North American Scrabble Championship three times including the last two years, uh, 2010 and 2011. In order to do that, he has to come over here, play against the very best North American players who also have a full command of the North American Scrabble word list, and then know not to play the other 80,000 words that he's assimilated in his brain. So the controversy is that there are a significant number of North American players who want North America to adopt this international lexicon. And then there are a number of North American players who don't and think for whatever reason that things should stay as they are. And the reason that they think things should stay as the way they are is largely a reluctance to learn new words. The second reason that's articulated by players in opposition to adopting the world book is that that dictionary is even more flawed than the book that we've created over the last 30 plus years. Flawed meaning what exactly? Too permissive, too many words that shouldn't be words, too many obsolete words. There's a lot of Scottish and Welsh. There's archaic stuff in there. There are additions from dialects and countries that are not North American. Well, I want to read a little passage from a guy named Brian Capoletto who wrote a manifesto on a Yahoo listserv. He was a kind of child prodigy in Scrabble. He's now in his 40s, and he, I imagine, remains one of the best players in North America, if not the world. And he is an advocate of North America adopting this expanded lexicon. And in this manifesto, he wrote, People at home often object to the words in Collins, and he uses the word Collins here. Collins is a kind of shorthand for this international dictionary. It stands for Collins English Dictionary. People often object to the words in Collins because they don't fit their own perceptions of the English language. The Maori entries are often cited, as are the more archaic entries. I think English has a rich 2,000-year history, and Collins does try to capture that. English is not limited to the last 200 years at home. It has undergone many changes, whether in England, the places that England colonized, or the Internet. Just because we have never seen a particular Collins entry word spoken or written on our soil does not mean that it has no right to be part of a lexicon that represents the English language. That's a pretty, I think, eloquent defense of cultural inclusion in adopting this larger dictionary. I, I mean, I'm with Brian. I think that our world is grown smaller and that our appreciation of language should grow bigger at the same time. You can make a case for a word that was 200 years old, maybe not being part of a modern rule book for a modern game. On the other hand, if you embrace the history of English 
And you also take into account that even at 267,000 some odd words in the international word list, you're still only scratching the surface of Mm. the breadth of English worldwide. And if you subscribe to your philosophy, which is that part of the beauty of Scrabble is that it resuscitates these words from their kind of prison of these old dictionaries, then you might want to adopt this larger dictionary because although you don't necessarily know the definitions or the etymologies of all the words you play, you might be inspired to look some of them up and be happily surprised. But there's also a strategic argument that goes on, which is that the inclusion of all these words makes the game too easy in some ways. You know, there was a great debate a few years ago when QI and ZA were added to North American Scrabble. QI being the word chi. Chi, and ZA being slang for pizza. And words are added, and I think this is important for people to understand too, words are added to a game like Scrabble, not because some Scrabble players sit in there making up words, but because they have been included in a more recent edition of the source books for the official Scrabble dictionary or the Scrabble word list. In this case, the most recent update used four standard North American college dictionaries. Pretty simple. If it was in there, it got added. It's not as if words are being created out of whole cloth. But there is a separate strategic point that I was getting to initially. It's that if you add more ways out, you know, Q used to be a complete albatross. Mm -hmm. You'd get stuck with a queue. Very often games were decided because someone had a queue, an unplayable queue on his rack at the end of the game. QI has effectively solved that. So Collins can be the same way. It is a more liberal game, a more liberating game. It is a more open game. It is a higher scoring game. And if you like it, it is a much more fun game. Anyone who's ever played Scrabble knows that sometimes in a rack you have all consonants or you have all vowels. In the expanded Collins Dictionary, there's a six-letter Maori word that's all vowels. So it would allow you to get out of a jam if you happen to have, you know, seven vowels in your hand and you could sort of do a, what's called a vowel dump. E-U-O-U-A-E. And what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> so a Maori listener will have to tell us what that means. And, you know, this isn't the first controversy that erupted over the Scrabble lexicon. You alluded earlier to Scrabble sort of excising the dirty words, or not the dirty words so much as the offensive words, from the Scrabble dictionary, and competitive Scrabble players revolted. They did. This was in the mid-1990s. A a woman was playing Scrabble, and she discovered that the word Jew, J-E-W, was listed in the official Scrabble dictionary that you could buy in any store. And it was cited as offensive, meaning to bargain with. and As in to Jew down. To Jew down. And she wrote to B'nai B'rith and the Jewish Anti-Defamation League. And Hasbro effectively capitulated to this letter writing campaign and agreed to excise a whole bunch of quote unquote offensive words from the dictionary. And they weren't all just shit fuck. They were Jesuit, papist. Uh, What's wrong with Jesuit? These were considered offensive terms. These were insults. But, I mean, here in Washington, D.C., Georgetown is often referred to as Capital a Jesuit J. school. Capital J. Capital J. Lowercase j, it means you're an asshole. Uh, <laughs> I guess to be called a Jesuit was derogatory. But also more sort of familiar racial and religious slurs like kike and spick and things like that were also Jip excised. was also excised. Fart was also excised, which my school Scrabble players think is incredibly amusing. But those words are all still playable in competitive Scrabble. Right. The compromise that was reached was that the National Scrabble Association would publish a word list, just the words, no definitions from AA 
to now ZZZ. And that satisfied the competitive players because competitive players don't care about meanings. Ultimately, the, the, the meanings are meaningless when you play Scrabble. It is about maximizing your opportunity to win a game. And you do that by laying down the letters in the sequence that you believe will allow you to do that. What that sequence is has no bearing off of the board. If kike works, it works. It works. You got to waste a blank, though, so I'm not sure that. It would often work. <laughs> this has been great. Thanks so much, Stefan. Thank you, Mike. Stefan Fatsis is the author of Word Freak, Heartbreak, Triumph, Genius, and Obsession in the World of Competitive Scrabble Players. The book is out now in its 10th anniversary edition. It's winter's by the fire, summer's by the sea. It's holidays and family. Yeah, it's Scrabble, America's good time game. It's Coco and it's kids, old stories and friends. It's rainy weekends you hope will never end. It's Scrabble, America's good time game. Yeah, it's Scrabble, America's good time game. Bradley. You're listening to Lexicon Valley. I'm Mike Volo, back with the answer to last week's Lexiconundrum, which went something like this. What word am I? I have exactly one O and one U. If you remove the O and push together the remaining letters, I form a second word. If you remove the U and do the same, I form a third word. If you remove both the O and the U, I form yet a fourth word. Many of you got this one right pretty quickly. The first in with the answer buoy, B-U-O-Y, which yields by, boy, and by, was Frank Yellen. He also suggested Rue, R-O-U-E, which yields row, rue, and re, R-E, which most dictionaries define as either a musical tone, as in do, re, mi, or a preposition, which means with regard to. Thanks to everyone who submitted an answer, and congratulations, Frank Yellen. A programming note here, we at Lexicon Valley had contracted with Slate to do an initial run of six episodes and then take several weeks off, talk to the poobahs, so we're going to do that. And in the meantime, you can show your continued support for the podcast by subscribing to our feed in iTunes. If you already subscribe, it would be great for you to rate and or review us. Of course, you can also send feedback to Slate. Lexicon Valley at gmail.com. That's slate lexicon valley at gmail.com. All of our previous episodes are archived indefinitely at slate.com slash lexicon valley. I want to thank Stefan Fatsis, author of the great book Word Freak, and Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts. Bob's not here, so I'll say it for him. Later, Gator. Gator.